0: Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires and I'm JP Smart. And before we get started today, we have a sponsor. Uh, Bitrise is a mobile continuous integration and delivery platform for your whole team with dozens of integrations for your favorite services. Uh, They're working on a lot of new features for building, testing and deploying, including uh, automatic uh, platform, virtual device testing, um, and they are even hiring. Uh, You can check them out at bitrise.io. Uh, Specifically for iOS devs, uh, they have automatic provisioning profile management and 60% faster build times with uh, a feature called Recursive Touch. Uh, Again, you can check them out at bitrise.io.
1: Today we want to revisit a topic that we brought up a few weeks ago, uh, and that's Swift for TensorFlow. Yeah,
0: we discussed the initial announcement, and there wasn't much at the time, um, and since then, um, there's a new repo on GitHub under the TensorFlow org that basically just has a bunch of docs and readmes and FAQs about Swift for TensorFlow. And a few, you know, small examples and uh, installation instructions, things like that. Kind of everything you need to get started.
1: Right, exactly. So both the docs repo at TensorFlow slash Swift and the actual Swift fork that supports all of this at Google slash Swift. Yeah. Um, So specifically, there's a very interesting document within the docs repo uh, called the Design Overview. And this lays out a number of uh, the new pieces that are involved um, in this project. And uh, there are a handful of really fascinating points here, some of which um, have broad implications for Swift as a whole that aren't necessarily tied to Swift for TensorFlow. Um, So we thought it'd be worthwhile to kind of dive into those now that there's new information.
0: Yeah, so at a high level, um, you know, there's a lot of information in here about Swift itself. You know, it's largely, um, I think, this is kind of geared toward the Python community, letting them know like exactly what swift is why it's a nice language to use why it's appropriate for uh this domain and how it lends itself um to this building this this new programming model within tensorflow
1: yeah so that's one side of it is Kind of talking more about the the language aspects, but uh, this design overview document also goes into quite a bit of detail in, in terms of how Swift is being modified uh, in order to support uh, the Swift for TensorFlow uh, uh, flow. So, as a recap, actually, uh, let's let's just have a brief revi- revision of what Swift for TensorFlow actually is. Um, so, TensorFlow is this uh, machine learning. Um, framework that has C APIs, uh, but also uh, mostly Python APIs uh, that machine learning folks generally use. And so recently uh, the TensorFlow team announced that they were going to do something called Swift for TensorFlow, which uh, is kind of a fork of Swift that has a number of um, changes that allow for eager execution of basically calling into Swift for TensorFlow functions and then transferring that at compile time into a TensorFlow graph, which wouldn't be possible with Python or other dynamic languages. Uh, And so it really leverages the fact that Swift is using LVM. uh, And so it was easy for them to add uh, this translation pass that can transform this uh this swift code into a declarative uh, tensorflow graph and then call into that at runtime uh and really bring a number of uh really powerful optimizations so you know I just mentioned the this compiler transformation um so let's focus on that component first so what happens here is that uh the way tensor the way tensorflow works is that um there are all of these nodes that uh, represent an operation, a function that takes a bunch of tensor inputs, which are really just vectors, um, and produce a number of other vector results, right? And by having this like large collection of operations, nodes, um, all weighted differently, all that perform kind of different transformations, that's that's what essentially builds this um, this neural network. Uh, And so to describe this um, using an eager execution model, you can do things like um, call like uh, operations on tensors, which are the Swift structs now in Swift for TensorFlow. So you can have like tensor plus tensor. And so that'll call the add uh, operator uh, within TensorFlow, which is which is built in, and then you can do the same thing with either other um, overloaded operators, or you can call special functions like do a 2D convolution uh, with filter. And you know we're we're going to talk about some like machine learning uh, uh, terms here, and many of which just fly way over my head here. But um, essentially, the the concept is that you just use Swift code. And under the hood, what this compiler transformation is doing is that these operators delegate to this um to this pound sign TF op uh, special compiler directive, which um this compiler pass then parses and converts into this static graph.
0: Yeah, so you have these like these new um primitives, it's like new syntax that's built into the language. And then all this stuff is wrapped in kind of like standard library style Swift. um, So that user facing APIs are like pretty um, easy to use. And um, uh, I guess a lot more like Swifty. They even call out in this example, uh, here in this doc, that you know, something exposed to the user as like a Swift enum uh, actually gets converted to a string later on for the TensorFlow stuff. So you have this like much nicer like Swift API for these things.
1: Right, you effectively have um, kind of more of a type-safe interface to what's essentially being transformed to kind of more dynamic things that are then being passed to the TensorFlow module under the hood. Uh, Oh, it's also worth saying that this... This compiler transformation, um, which they call the the graph program extraction transformation, is a stage within the compilation process that happens after the parser and the type checker in the traditional Swift compiler, but before the Swift intermediate language optimizer. So uh, it'll take this kind of fully formed Swift program and then and then run this pass before any of either the SIL level or the LLVM optimization passes. And so the, the SIL stage and the LLVM stages of the Swift compiler should effectively be unchanged, which should hopefully simplify things down the line for uh, if um, if they want to upstream some of the techniques used here, well, then maybe the Swift compiler... Maybe all they would need to do is expose kind of a a plugin system into uh, the Swift compiler, which I say all they would need to do, but right. it's still pretty yeah. complex. But <laughs> it's at least more localized than say, like, have a complete fork of of every part of the Swift compilation process.
0: That's all you need to do, guys. Just uh, <laughs> just build that plugin system. Let us know when it's done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just do it already, um, right? And so this this is fairly localized, and so this is designed in in a really modular way. Um, and so this stage would then produce these TensorFlow graphs, which would be kind of serialized versions of TensorFlow graphs. Um, that Then finally, at the final linking stage, uh, there's a new runtime library that just that could call into that um, bundled asset, so to speak. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe we should uh,
0: go back a bit and... Yes. Describe like that the current like compiler flow. So you you'd have like your .dot swift files, all the code that you've written uh, that gets parsed and type checked and generates an AST, an abstract an abstract syntax tree. Um, that gets um, modified and transformed in different ways. That gets handed off to CIL. Um The SIL pass um, where a SIL is generated the SIL is optimized that gets lowered into llvm ir uh, which is the llvm intermediate representation and then that gets handed off to llvm to uh, finish through like the the general like llvm pipeline and then eventually spit out your binary so this is hooking in after the parsing and type checking. And it sounds like
1: they're actually generating SIL as well. Yeah, um, I, this isn't represented in in the diagram here, but it seems like maybe the parser and type checker, and then perhaps the graph program extraction phase operates on SIL, but it's before the SIL optimizer? Or is it operating on... The AST uh, before SIL is even generated. It's it's unclear to me. That's
0: interesting. Yeah, it might. Yeah, maybe it's a combination of those. Maybe they need the AST for some of these operations as well.
1: Yeah, looking at the um, TFD abstraction source file here, uh, it seems to to directly pull in uh, a number of uh, dependencies from the SIL optimizer. Mm -hmm. And so it might be operating on SIL. Yeah, and so the TF de-abstraction, there are are docs here um, in line in the C++ implementation. This class wraps the state and logic necessary to de-abstract code into one specific SIL function, which has been designated as a potential top-level host for the tensor code. So actually it's operating... It it takes in a SIL function and performs a pass on it to modify it for TensorFlow stuff.
0: I see. Interesting. Yeah, so maybe they uh Yeah, maybe they hook in right after SIL then for everything.
1: Yeah, or this, this might be part of the initial SIL generation. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, but nonetheless you know this is still um, kind of fairly localized at least at at the compilation phase and i i saw something where um the the binary representation right so they serialize the tensorflow graph to a protobuf and encode the bits directly into the executable making it easy to load at program runtime so it's it's emitted directly into the binary um Presumably kind of similar to how uh to how like Swift runtime metadata is embedded into a binary. Or um it's it's probably it might be a, a whole different section as mm-hmm. well, similar to how bit code is embedded right, in right. a binary. Uh, so there are all these tools in LVM in order to do this um in a way that is kind of format agnostic. So presumably like they're leveraging some of that. Yeah, it's also fascinating here that they're serializing it to a protobuf rather than reusing some of the, uh, like, LLVM bitcode st- uh, streaming encoder, mm-hmm. which is used, I think, well, it's definitely used to, obviously, encode bitcode, but it's, it's used as part of the Swift compiler for a number of other things. Like, I know, I know Swift syntax leverages that.
0: Oh, interesting. I for think maybe purpose? to
1: produce diagnostics. Um okay. I just I just know that it's used in there. So it's it's interesting that they're using no. protobufs here um considering that they have other uh binary encoding mechanisms within the Swift um mm-hmm. within the Swift compiler. Yeah, I wonder if that's for performance reasons though to use a protobuf I mean the, the bitcode encoders is already pretty um pretty optimized where it does things like bitpacking uh yeah. and um like efficient encoding mm-hmm. of arbitrary data. Mm-hmm. Uh so one reason they might want to do this is if they uh is if this serialized TensorFlow graph representation um is, like, some sort of st- standard interchange format, even just, like, within Google or within TensorFlow-compatible things that you can take this protobuf-encoded tensor f- TensorFlow graph, and, I, like, a number of tools can support that. I bet that's it. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, you could grab a binary that's compiled with Swift for TensorFlow, and if you know where to find the TensorFlow graph within it, you can you can then like inspect it. Right. Right. Or maybe
0: there's some tooling that we're not aware of or that we haven't seen yet that actually will spit this out somewhere for you to use elsewhere or something like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, there's a final tidbit here, uh, which is one of the most interesting parts of this document, which kind of expands, uh, potential uses of this approach. Um, uh, the algorithms are independent of tensorflow itself the The same compiler transformation can extract any computation that executes asynchronously from the host program while communicating through sends and receives. Um, and so this this kind of concept of of having um, this I think this is talking more about the runtime side of things that hooks into uh, the serialized TF graph. This is useful and can be applied to anything. that represents computation as a graph, including other machine learning frameworks, other kinds of accelerators. So like either crypto, graphics, transcoding. Um, and so this is uh, potentially a useful thing for Swift as a whole, not just for machine learning uh, that could be upstreamed um, in kind of more of a generic way.
0: Yeah, and in fact, uh, Chris Eidhoff... Brought this up on Twitter, right? That uh, potentially this uh, could be used for GUI programming,
1: and yeah, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Bit? So Chris um, posted uh, saying that you know he had identify that it seemed like the automatic differentiation portion of Swift for TensorFlow could be super useful and applied for, for GUI programming. So I think he was talking more about the automatic differentiation mm-hmm. side of things than this kind of runtime embedded um, uh, external communication. Sure, sure. But the runtime side of things could also be leveraged here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think this is a good segue to talk about the, the automatic differentiation side of things. Yeah,
0: so what exactly does that mean?
1: <laughs> so uh, really... Um, and punching above my weight here about what this is, but the the gist of it, or at least uh, as far as I can tell, um, typically like especially when when you think of um, kind of pure uh, functions or pure functional programming, uh, functions tend to be going from state to state, right, or from from data in data out input output. Um, while if you operate on a higher order than that, then you're effectively you're effectively um, operating on the derivative of the operation, mm-hmm. right? So instead of thinking of state to state, if you think of the function as being uh, kind of a, a vector that um, uh, that is a state transition, then automatic differentiation could be um, translating that operation mm-hmm. to different operations. So instead of thinking of going from state to state or data to data, if you think of, um, you have an operation as input and an, a different operation is output. Mm-hmm. So what Chris Eidhoff seemed to be saying is that this concept of automatic differentiation, which is kind of a compiler guided way to, uh, to, to build those higher order um, views into into the operations could be leveraged to, um, to do GUI programming so that instead of going from state to view, you would take state operations mm-hmm. to view changes. Right. And this is at an abstract level similar to what React or React Native does where you just have pure state representing your, your view hierarchy and then react takes that and then draws the whole screen. But um, the big difference here is that those kind of react type frameworks just operate on, on state, not the state transitions. And it has heuristics to try and guess what the state transitions are or what changed. Whereas if you could semantically just operate on kind of the semantic intent, of all of those operations and and transitions, then you could build a much more robust and and cleaner, maybe even more performant um, GUI tool or GUI framework that um, could be entirely declarative, uh, but wouldn't suffer from kind of um, false positives when you're manually diffing two states. Right. So
0: you'd have something like React, React Native... You build your state, you have that uh, you have some changes, you uh, or you have like your view state. Something in your model changes, you rebuild that view state. you diff that with the previous, and then that's how you get your change set to propagate to the view layer to, quote, have an optimal view update instead of refreshing the entire. Well, that's
1: how React works today. Yeah, is that it'll perform this diff after the operations have been performed? Exactly. And it's basically like a black box. Right. You're saying this is what I had before. This is what I have now. Let's diff it so that I don't refresh anything that I can't tell changed. Exactly. But but that's leaky.
0: Right. And so this would, by working with the derivatives instead, you would just have this. Kind of single operation output that you would apply that results in getting that view to the next state, essentially yeah,
1: so like you know if if you've ever is here's here's maybe a, a parallel that might be useful if you've ever done a git diff on a whole bunch of textual changes mm-hmm. and the diff was nonsensical, as in like it didn't understand that you moved a function. To a later place, and so like it thinks that you changed a bunch of intermediate code. You didn't touch any of that. You just moved a block of text. Right. Well, that is basically how React works today. Mm-hmm. With you do a diff with your before state and your after state, and you lose semantic value there. You mm-hmm. don't know that there was a move operation here. Right. Um, because you don't have the domain knowledge. uh, And even if you did, like there are times when you'd get the same result had you performed semantically a bunch of edits in in between, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas operating on the transitions, on on the operations themselves and translating those to equivalent operations on the view level um, would be much more robust, because you're not left with heuristics and guesswork, which are computationally expensive mm-hmm. to figure out like what changed. So like, say you're in a UI stack view and you're adding a bunch of views and removing others. Well, you're leaving UIKit, if you're trying to animate that, you're leaving UIKit to try and guess, uh, perhaps based off of UI view identity, mm-hmm. uh, which ones were added, which ones were removed, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to perform some sort of like optimal
0: animation or something.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that, and that can sometimes go wrong if it, um... nothing goes wrong in <laughs> UI kit, especially not UI stack view. It's yeah. rock solid. Um, yeah. So, so this, this could be kind of um a better way to do that. And so, yeah, yeah. Swift for TensorFlow is adding uh, automatic differentiation because it needs to do the same kinds of transformations to the TensorFlow graph uh, to do things like um, enabling custom data structures, recursion, and perform higher order differentiation, which are all things that you need to do for for machine learning computation. And so, the way that Swift for TensorFlow added automatic differentiation into Swift is entirely independent of any TensorFlow implementation. So they've done this by having a new compiler or, or a new declaration attribute called at differentiable which you can annotate functions, and these all have to be pure functions, as far as I can tell, that uh, take one input and produce another output, right? So this is a state-to-state transition. Uh, But then you annotate it so that you can say, what is the reverse of performing this operation, right? So at differentiable, Mm. you specify that it's the reverse, and then you pass in the the declaration identifier of the reverse operation. Mm -hmm. And so in this example, um, they provide uh, an example of a log function that takes a float input, produces a float output. And then the adjoint log is the reverse, which is annotated in the log declaration is at differentiable reverse adjoint. And then they pass in this adjoint log uh, function name. And then that would presumably perform the inverse operation. Right. This uh, I'm probably getting much of this wrong, <laughs> but I think, and maybe I'm wrong here too, but I think that this is the general gist. Um, and so by specifying this in the compiler, then whenever operations are being performed, like we're calling into log and we want to know how to translate that, we look at uh, at this compiler annotation to determine how to compute the partial derivative of this operation. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm getting a lot of this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone, um, either from the Swift for TensorFlow team, would love to come on and, and you know correct us on all of this, uh, you're you know you're welcome to come on. Uh, otherwise, you can just tweet at us, I guess. <laughs>
0: right. Uh, yeah, it's super interesting. Uh, it definitely is difficult to wrap your head around, though. Yeah, I guess the, the cool thing here is that this is all at least very familiar syntax-wise. I mean, this is just another attribute that um, you can apply to functions like the ones that already exist in Swift. But yes, I, th- I feel like there's a lot going on here.
1: So I haven't, uh, I haven't seen this until just now, but there's a whole other doc in this repo called uh, Automatic Differentiation in Swift. And so I look forward to reading that and probably uh, feeling really stupid about <laughs> what I just said because uh, hopefully this could clear it up.
0: Yeah, even a section in this doc, how reverse mode AD works, um, which can probably help explain some of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are actually there's also a white paper linked in this original doc. I mean, this doc links out to many others. So it's probably like a good place to start and then you can follow whichever rabbit hole you you wish. <laughs> and um yeah, it's good bedtime reading probably. <laughs> uh
1: yeah, so there's there's other um other parts here that uh, could be upstreamed or there's other uh, differences from Swift proper, one of which is Python interoperability, um, which we've, this is one piece that we had kind of seen a little bit before. Yes,
0: the dynamic callable and what was the other proposal?
1: Dynamic member lookup. Yeah. Uh, Those were both merged or actually the dynamic member lookup was merged. I don't know if dynamic callable was ever merged. Okay, uh, I missed that. Yeah, so did both of those proposals get accepted then? Uh, we'll do some real-time lookup. Yeah. Yeah. So dynamic member lookup was implemented and available in Swift 4.2. Okay, well, soon to be released 4.2 at yeah. this point. Yeah. Uh, whereas dynamic callable was um, only ever posted as a gist so it was never in official uh swift evolution proposal um but uh looking at this as we speak um this document this gist was last updated um april twenty ninth and so like it's still pretty uh pretty active, i suppose, yeah, if I remember correctly,
0: all of these ideas were presented. Together And then the dynamic member lookup was branched off as, like, its own separate proposal that that could stand on its own and be implemented on its own.
1: Yeah. Um, and it looks like um, Chris, uh, on April 29th, actually just, um, just created a pitch thread on the Swift forums. And okay. so uh, it seems like this is kind of getting revived. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps in time for Swift 4.2, if not maybe Swift 5. Probably not Swift 4.2, just because the final branching's already happened. Uh, Also on that note, um, so back to Chris Eidhoff's
0: uh, tweet about using AD for view rendering. Um, Also, like in these threads, there's um, uh, some discussion from uh, Richard Way, who works on TensorFlow, or Swift for TensorFlow, and he says we hope to, we hope AD will become uh, a general Swift feature that benefits communities other than machine learning. Uh, we'll draft an AD proposal at some point on Swift evolution, and it sounds like they, uh, yeah. He also says we don't want to maintain a fork. Uh, we would like to upstream things within the next six months or so. Um, so all of the these AD features that, again, are not TensorFlow specific, will sounds like the goal is to get all of that upstream right. very, very soon. Actually,
1: yeah, it it seems like um, you know maybe twelve months from now, where we could be is you have AD that's built into Swift, you have um, a dynamic callable, dynamic member lookup that are also built into Swift. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have um, a compiler plugin system that allows kind of these custom passes Mm -hmm. to be done um, so that, you know, all the Swift for TensorFlow transformations don't have to be upstreamed, but rather it could be like a plugin to the Swift compiler that you can download separately, Mm -hmm. right? So that Google and the TensorFlow teams keeping their side, like, they're fairly... Uh, fairly limited in scope Mm -hmm. where it's only doing the things that don't belong in Swift proper Mm -hmm. and that it's fairly easy for a consumer to just pull this in and and build Swift for TensorFlow code. Mm -hmm. And then um, other things that Google or Swift for TensorFlow would maintain separately would be things like uh, a Python package, Mm -hmm. which you could just pull in like like a general... Uh, Swift Package Manager package. Yep. Yep. Right. You just like specify Python and you package that Swift and you do import Python. You have it mm-hmm. and uh, a TensorFlow model and like those would all be separate as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That would be like
0: wow, that sounds like super clean. Very nice. Um, you know, this reminds me though, like this idea of some kind of plugin architecture into the Swift compiler uh i won't pretend to know exactly how all this stuff works but it sounds similar to the way that llvm works in some ways where you can you just write this like front end um and then the rest of this pipeline you get for free or even within swift itself you have like the clang importer for this c and objective c interop um you know i would this you do you see this working in like a similar way to that at least? Ish. Or, yeah. So
1: I think um like all of those LVM passes and mm. the clang importer, I think they're modular in the sense that like they're independent they're in they can be mostly independently developed, but they still have to be like all compiled as part of the same executable. Mm. And I think there's no Infrastructure currently to really kind of hoist those out, so like I see. you wouldn't really be you, you wouldn't really be able to have those as like separate executables or downloaded from separate sources and compile them independently. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how feasible that is, because um, that seems like a gateway to to keeping all the TensorFlow compilation plugins separate. Because if you have to compile it as part of Swift, then like how are you how are you gonna do that? Like maybe you still have to the only way you do this is you build Swift from source. Right. Right. And now like maybe the Swift for TensorFlow repo is small, but it still like injects itself into the Swift the Swift compiler compilation process.
0: Right. And then you have this problem where users would have to stall and in, would have to install normal Swift, and then, like, TensorFlow Swift. TensorFlow
1: Swift, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, like, well, one way to sort of mitigate this is to have Swift for TensorFlow just produce binaries and, and packages mm-hmm. uh, like like Swift.org does, right, for macOS and for Ubuntu versions. But ultimately, um, you're still stuck with two different Swift versions. It doesn't seem as clean, but it it might be uh, impossible or too difficult to have this all work as a plugin system that's compiled independently and that doesn't itself require compiling all of LLVM first. Right.
0: Um, Yeah, although it does seem like they are pretty interested in upstreaming as much of this work as possible, Um, which I guess reduces the maintenance burden of their fork if they do have to keep that around.
1: Right. Yeah, and, and there's value for, uh, for other projects too, for other domains. Like say you want to build um, like a, a GPU driver mm-hmm. um, for this or using some of the similar concepts, right? Like it'd be great if you didn't have to replicate all of this complex infrastructure mm-hmm. to squeeze that in, right? If there was uh, a generic enough, extensible enough Swift compiler plugin system. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really don't (laughs) know what I'm talking about. Like I have no clue. (laughs) It seems like a massive undertaking, but uh, you know, Richard way seems to think that they can upstream things within the next six months. So I don't know what they mean by that necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure if there's a dedicated team at
0: Google to see these things through and write tests, et cetera, and like support these features, then I can see it happening pretty easily. Because um, obviously the core team is super busy with other initiatives. And-
1: right. And they don't, you know, they don't answer to Google or they don't, you know, they don't have TensorFlow as like a primary um, uh, consumer right. in, in in their work, right? Like they're not going to do anything to make their lives more difficult, but, you know, they're also Apple employees and they're going to push Swift as a language forward before they start pushing any of the... You know frameworks that you use with Swift directly, right? right? They'll 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 do a best effort, and they might have like Swift returns TensorFlow stuff as their um, as their Swift compatibility suite, maybe. But that's even that seems to be pushing it. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up was um, so in the doc they link to a bunch of these uh, these different files, like these different TensorFlow types which live in uh standard lib public tensor flow and so if you go if you look at some of that code you know it's th- these are additions to the standard library um in this fork and i wonder how that might work in this kind of theoretical plugin system that we were discussing a second ago um Because if you've ever looked at standard library code, you know, there are all these like LLVM primitives in there. And like, you know, the standard library code is a little bit special. It's like Swift with some extra things in there. Um, And the only way to get access to that is to be part of the standard lib, right? You can't really access that outside of it. Yeah. Um, So I wonder how that might work in the future.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think many of the uh, Swift public or Swift standard library um, magic annotations and things like that Mm -hmm. are actually accessible um, from public Swift consumers. Interesting. So like for forever, you were able to use like the at underscore inline Or Ah. something similar, right, and things like that, right. And I think that much of that still works um, as long as you know it's there. Yeah, yeah. You don't get autocomplete for it, um, but uh, you know the people writing this are are used to that anyway. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the Swift standard library authors are are used to not having that. Um, So there's there's surely some that is probably dependent on having this compiled, uh, with, with special magic, Mm -hmm. but, uh, there's probably a path forward to, um, to upstream that, uh, and, and to reduce the reliance on that. Mm. -hmm.
0: Um, that makes sense. It still doesn't answer some of the questions about, um, like accessing LLV, LLVM primitives, for example, if you need to do that, right? So, Yeah, but it's possible
1: that that code could be rewritten to avoid that. Um, and if, if they're doing that for performance reasons, then it's also possible to um, make the standard library code more performant uh, for those cases so that they can kind of upstream that performance optimization, mm-hmm. right?
0: Right, right. Cool. I think that's all we have for uh, today. You can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And you can find me at Jesse underscore Squires.
1: You find me on Twitter at SimJP. And our thanks to Bitrise for sponsoring this show. Yeah, you can find them at bitrise.io. Thanks for listening.